This is an AI Group podcast. In this podcast, we'll be discussing the most significant workplace relations issues that members will need to grapple with and get across as we start 2023. The full members-only report for January is available on our website at aigroup.com.au in the news section under Reports and Policy Papers. With me today to discuss the key aspects of this latest report is Brent Ferguson, AI Group's Head of National Workplace Relations Policy, and I'm Tony Melville, our Group's Head of Corporate Affairs. So we're going to look at three issues from this quite lengthy report today in this podcast. The first is the next tranche of IR reforms. The second is the proceedings relating to the setting of principles for agreement approvals that I know a lot of you will be looking at during the next 12 months. And the Fair Work Commission's imposed new annual leave shutdown provisions in modern awards, which uh, it might just be Christmas, but it's, uh, for some, just be over, but it's certainly something there to be across this year. So, okay, let's go to the first one. Now, this is the big one for the year. Last year was the biggest IR changes in living memory, um, or at least a decade anyway. <laughs> I think that's fair, Tony. <laughs> living IR memory. Um, so, but next year, this coming year, 2023, is going to see a whole new raft of changes. So let, let's go through them. And these are matters that are outstanding from, from what the government took to the last election. So the first one is rearing its head again, casual employees. What's the government hoping to do with that? Well, this is the first of a tranche of reforms that the government's proposing to move on, uh, you know, from our understanding from engagement with them this year. Uh, it's one of the elements of the uh, policies that the government took to the last election. Now, in essence, they've said that they're going to look at the definition of who will be a casual employee uh, for the purposes of the Fair Work Act. Now, there's some technicalities associated with that and some detail, but I think what members should be prepared for is proposed legislation in some work way curtailing the use of casual employees and certainly the use of regular casual employees. Now, we'll have to see the full detail and consultation around what that looks like, but it does raise again the spectre of you know, a real restriction on the use of casual employment as something that we've already been engaged with the government over. So it's not about completely undoing the High Court decision on defining a casual, because when that happened, that, that, that was a huge sigh of release. A lot of companies looking at millions of dollars in back pay. Yeah, and look, this is the, the complexity. The election commitment was to look at the definition of casual employment and reinstate the common law test now, members will recall that this was a huge source of controversy as we had a number of problematic federal court decisions uh, that you know, would have exposed employers to millions, tens of millions uh, across industry of liability for back pay in terms of entitlements. Now, ultimately, uh, two things happened to, to relieve employers of that. Firstly, the coalition moved to pass legislation which inserted a workable definition of casual employee in the Act, which effectively removed that liability. Uh, but secondly, ultimately, the High Court uh, came down with quite a favourable definition, uh, which formed the basis of the common law definition of casual employee, which uh, reinforced that outcome. Now, uh, as I said, the election commitment was to change the definition under the Act to reflect the common law test, uh, but that test has changed. Well, hopefully any changes wouldn't be retrospective. Well, I think that's that's what we'll be lobbying for, right? The real problem that employers faced was this potential retrospective element to the decision from the federal court in the sense that people who they had thought were engaged as a casual for many years could have been found to have not been a true casual for the purposes of the Fair Work Act, with the result being that they had a liability to certain leave entitlements. Now, that's what we'll be arguing for, is that whatever change is made needs to be workable for industry, 
and it certainly needs to avoid raising this prospect of industry employers uh, being saddled with costs that they hadn't anticipated uh, based on a reclassification of a permanent employee or, or a casual as a permanent employee rather. Okay. So the, the next, next one in this expected yeah. tranche of IR changes this year, labour hire firms and same job, same pay. Yes, so the, the government has indicated that it, it will uh, move on its commitment to regulate in relation to what's termed the same job, same pay principle. Now, again, there's some complexity here, and I think that complexity is why the government hasn't already moved on this area. But the core of the issue is that the government has said they will look to ensure that employees who are engaged to a labour hire arrangement receive the same pay as employees who are directly employed to do comparable roles uh, by an individual employer. So it will have big implications at the very least for labour hire companies and for employers that utilise labour hire. Yeah, and, and the example that we often use is an airline employing people. They give their own staff special treats on the airlines and special deals. The labour hire firm working at that same airline can't. Well, and that's that's part of the issue. It's, Does the government understand that? Well, we've already been in lockups with the government where we've been talking you know, with the Department of Employment and Workplace Relations through the complexity of this issue. It, it sounds good. The headline is that simple, same job, same pay, but there are all sorts of complexities with how you actually work out the pay and how an employer can actually utilise the arrangement. Okay. Um, so yeah, how you define the same pay is one of the key issues that we're going to have to lobby very hard uh, for to ensure that it's workable. Okay. Now, employee-like forms of work, this is gig workers. I, I think you mentioned in passing before that this is a whole area that the government could look at fiddling with, with, fiddling with mending. <laughs> this could end up being a very profound change. And we've got a lot of members in this area too. Uh, we do, and, and it's quite open-ended in terms of the scope of this reform potentially. Now, um, what the government has said in essence is that they're intending to legislate to enable the Commission to set uh, terms and conditions for employment-like workers. Now, the obvious uh, uh, examples are the gig workers. That includes you know, your, your delivery drivers and so forth. But it's potential. there is potential for this to have much broader ramifications and uh, result in the regulation of contracting arrangements generally. But certainly the key focus of this is potentially empowering the Commission to set terms and conditions for the gig economy uh, and We've already, again, on this been in discussion with the department about uh, what that might look like. Would that be like a gig award or something? Well, it, it could be, but if you look at other jurisdictions, for example, in, in the New South Wales jurisdiction, the commission uh, in that state is already empowered to set industrial instruments that set minimum terms and conditions for certain truck drivers who are engaged as contract drivers or independent contractors. Uh, for many people, this will raise alarm bells about the prospect of the return of the RSRT. That was the Road Safety Remuneration Tribunal. You may remember, Tony, it was a tribunal that operated briefly and set terms and conditions for contractors in the trucking industry. Quite controversial because when it actually did set terms and conditions, it had a pretty devastating impact on the viability of a lot of those contractors. So it pushed costs up hugely. It did, and it was quickly abolished. Yep. Um, so the, the concern is that how will the government ensure that those mistakes of the past aren't repeated in any regulation? Okay. Uh, another one is rearing its head again is criminal offences for wage theft. Well, this has been on the agenda for some time, yeah. so employers won't be shocked about this. Um, certainly the government has said what it intends to do is move to introduce wage theft laws. They are, in effect, criminal offences uh, for very serious instances of uh, underpayment of wages. Uh, that... that 
you know, one of the key issues there will be what is the test for how this applies? You know, is it, we need to ensure that it is only for those very serious, deliberate, systematic attempts, if you will, uh, to underpay people that is caught and subject employers to these sorts of penalties. But look, this will be a huge issue and it'll be a matter that raises the importance of ensuring your compliance is in order in relation to uh, you know, the application of all of your rewards and industrial instruments. But, but certainly there should be no surprises. I'd, I'd expect that will be promptly uh, on the government's agenda. That'll be an early one. So another one is the um, with putting within the national employment standards the ability for employees to pursue their unpaid super. Is this yes. a big change? Well, whether it's a big change or not partly depends on exactly what the government does. But at the moment, superannuation arrangements are largely regulated uh, or applied through uh, the ATO, of course. Uh, the proposition is that we should, uh, or the government is intending to introduce uh, obligations in relation to superannuation in the national employment standards uh, with the intent of making it easier for parties to seek enforcement of those entitlements. So again, we have to look at the detail of how that's done, but that potentially is a big change uh, to the system because awards and the industrial legislation haven't dealt you know, comprehensively with superannuation for a very long time. Okay, and you mentioned we're talking to government a lot of these things. There's not gonna be a repeat is there of all the problems we had during 2022 with the multi-employer bargaining and the, the seeming lack of consultation. What, what are we doing to try and keep this on track as far as employers are concerned? Well, we'll look at, on a number of these issues, AI Group has already been in consultation uh, with the department around what a regulatory response uh, might look like. Uh, but certainly uh, our engagement with the minister has so far you know, involved a commitment to you know, further consulting with us uh, uh, to avoid some of you know, what we perceive to be the deficiencies in the process last time. We've been very public about our concerns that it was rushed and that there wasn't enough consultation. Uh, certainly we're calling uh, for those mistakes not to be avoided uh, and we're very hopeful that that will happen. But uh, I think industry needs to be aware that the government obviously did have a number of significant election commitments and certainly the government's been very upfront about their desire to implement those election commitments uh, and to do so we expect this year. Okay, well, on these issues, any of those ones that have raised some questions for you, you can Brent's offered his email if you want to email Brent at brent.ferguson at aigroup.com.au. So that's the next tranche of IR reforms. The last tranche of IR reforms included uh, the provision under the Secure Jobs Better Pay Act to uh, make some significant changes to enterprise agreement approvals. So just in short, what is that all about? Well, uh, one of the issues that we cover off in this uh, significant issues report that members can read about is um, proposed changes to the approval of enterprise agreement making the process for approving enterprise agreements. And in simple terms, um, uh, one of the issues that will change is that there's going to be a simplification of uh, uh, what's required in terms of pre-approval steps. Now, at the moment, members will be painfully aware that the Act includes a very prescriptive set of requirements around what must be done and what must be done in particular by an employer in order to have an agreement made and approved. Detailed rules around how you explain the terms of the agreements, how you organise the vote, et cetera. Now, very broad terms, uh, what this legislation will do is remove a lot of that prescription and replace it with an overarching test that the Commission has to apply, uh, which is in essence to be satisfied that the agreement was genuinely approved by the workforce. So there's an overarching test that the Commission just has to be satisfied of. Uh, and underpinning that, uh, there will be a new requirement on the Commission to set a, a set of principles that will govern or explain uh, what needs to be done uh, uh, for an agreement to be genuinely 
approved or genuinely agreed to by the workforce. So in essence, the, uh, the Act requires the Commission by June to set a, a range of principles that explains what an employer needs to do in order to have an agreement approved by its workforce. Those principles will provide guidance to employers. They can follow those principles uh, and will provide guidance to the Commission as to when it should approve an agreement. But if there's some departure from those principles, that doesn't mean that the agreement won't be able to be approved by the Commission if it is satisfied that employees did genuinely agree to it. Because there were cases uh, under the current system where if you're a bit late or, you know, there was a, you know, something wrong with the paperwork, it was basically rejected and you had to start again. So will that all be gone? Well, yeah, most of it, a lot of it will be gone. So the, the, the system will be far less prescriptive. As in, there'll just be this overarching obligation, and I'm simplifying somewhat, but this general overarching obligation to be satisfied that the agreement was generally agreed to by the workforce and there'll be a set of principles that employers will be able to follow which should guide them so that you know if they follow the principles uh, you could be satisfied or expect that the commission would approve your agreement but having a little deficiency in your process and so forth would be far less likely to right. be a catalyst for rejection um, so that that's intended to be the improvement but look how beneficial this is will depend in part upon what those principles look like. Right. And that really brings us to what we're dealing with now. Um, the Commission has announced that it's about to commence proceedings that will uh, result in the setting of those principles. Uh, and it's going to start uh, as soon as this, as early as you know, this week, potentially, uh, with the Commission engaging in some consultation with peak councils like an AI group about what those principles should look like. So your members will be asked then, obviously, for, for their views leading up to this. I see there's 27 March as a deadline for consultations, submissions to be filed. Yeah, so what, what at the moment we'd welcome any feedback from members around uh, what those principles should look like uh, and issues in relation to the agreement approval process that has caused particular concern. Um, you know, the full bench has said that they're going to consult with AI Group uh, you know, as early as this month or early February with a view to then releasing a discussion paper and then there'll be some proceedings uh, that'll involve AI group making submissions about what those principles should potentially look like um, and uh, ultimately um, uh, a draft set of principles will be released and uh, there'll be scope for the parties to make submissions about that and we will certainly do that but consultation is beginning now is the short point so if you have news about it please do reach out. Okay, and then uh, the, the last item we'll talk about today is the changes to shutdown provisions in modern awards. Now, you know, I said around Christmas, but there's shutdowns at all times of the year, aren't there, for various enterprises? And yeah, what's been changed? Yeah, look, there are various enterprises, but I mean, the issue here is that it was very common for awards and industrial instruments, for that matter, to contain provisions that enable employers to, in effect, shut down their operations for a period for the purposes of putting people on annual leave. You look like an oil refinery that, that might need to do a, a shutdown because for maintenance or whatever. Yeah, so lots of manufacturing facilities shut down in order to do two things. One, facilitate maintenance of their operations, but also let their staff take leave in a coordinated way so they take it all at the same time. As you say, it often happens at various points in the year, but most commonly, these shutdown arrangements happen at Christmas and so forth. Now... Uh, a lot of employers have in the past relied on award terms that enabled them to uh, direct uh, employees to take annual leave. And if the employee didn't have enough annual leave, uh, they purported to enable the employer to direct them to take unpaid leave for the duration of that shutdown. Um, but there's been a really profound change uh, through this decision. What's that? So um, this was the culmination of a matter that really had run for a number of years. Uh, in essence, the full bench of the Fair Work Commission has reviewed the shutdown provisions in modern awards and decided that it will replace them with a standard model clause uh, dealing with these issues. The big issue for a lot of employers, or probably the biggest issue, is that they've also formed the view 
that they don't have power to include within that clause a term enabling an employer to direct an employee to take unpaid leave uh, if they haven't got enough annual leave to cover the period of the shutdown. Now, what that means is that the new model term that's going to be inserted into all modern awards that currently include shutdown provisions uh, won't include any capacity for an employer to direct people to take unpaid leave. Uh, and that could have some significant implications for employers uh, if they don't manage it uh, carefully. Um, so we've prepared an all-member advice that explains what the new model term says, explains the ramifications for employers, but also goes through some options that employers have for managing uh, this outcome and for managing leave accruals uh, ahead of you know future shutdown arrangements. Because you know you've got a shutdown coming up in July, you'll be looking at to ensure your staff have still got leave. Oh, that's right. There's a, there, look, there's a few options, but I think, turning to your point, at one of the key responses is to make sure you manage leave accruals and requests for accessing leave now ahead of any future shutdown to ensure as far as possible that your workforce has sufficient annual leave to cover the duration of the shutdown. And the decision of the full bench suggested that, you know, in many circumstances, it's going to be reasonable to say no to an employee request for annual leave uh, if you need to refuse that so that they maintain a bank of leave to cover a future shutdown. But look, that's one of the issues we raise is that there are going to be some negative consequences for both employers and employees from this decision. It's going to mean lots of employers take a much more restrictive approach to the management of annual leave to try and ensure people do have enough leave to cover their shutdowns. Uh, otherwise, if someone doesn't have the leave, then you'll have to pay them anyway. Well, that could can't be take one. it off against future leave. Uh, yeah, well, you could, there, there will be a capacity to agree to a, annual leave in advance or uh, to the employee taking unpaid leave, and that was one of the outcomes that we pressed for. Uh, but one of the risks is, depending on how you set up your contracts and depending on what your industrial instrument says, is that you may not have a capacity to make them take unpaid leave anymore. You certainly won't have one pursuant to the award, which could leave you in a situation of potentially needing to cover their pay for that period. Now, look, there are some options, and our advice canvases those in details, and, of course, the team at our group and our group workplace lawyers can can talk individual employers through that. But managing the leave is a is a key issue. Um, uh, there might be some capacity to also use the stand down provisions in the Act in some circumstances to make people take uh, uh, to be stood down without pay. But that all gets quite complicated, and I'd encourage people to get their advice about their specific circumstances. Okay, and again, this is for members. So call the workplace advice line for members, or call that line anyway if you want to become a member one three hundred double five double six double seven, or for workplace lawyers, what's their email? Uh, well, you can access the assistance of the team of lawyers at AR Group by calling the, uh, the advice line yeah. and the advice that we've sent out to members uh, will canvas these and other options for managing the outcome. So decision. check the advice out and yeah. if you want some more support or maybe even to get someone to review your own situation, give us a call. That's right. It'll have the details for the email address for AR Group, workplace lawyers, et cetera, as well. Okay, that's fantastic. I'll, I'll wrap it up there. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Brent. So Brent Ferguson, a group's head of National Workplace Relations Policy, and that full members only reports on the AI Group website at aigroup.com.au. Thanks a lot, Brent. Thanks for that, Tony. Okay, that's Bye. all for now. See you next time. 